Good morning, everyone. Pretty quiet this morning, fair enough. It's a pleasure to be with you all today as we continue in our study of Joshua. Today we find ourselves in a fairly brief chapter, Joshua 20. Feel free to go and turn there. As we'll be looking at a unique aspect to the legal system as, as prescribed by God to his people. As we get started today, simple quick question for you. If someone, say a perfect stranger, were to root around in your medicine cabinets at home, what would they see? Really more importantly, what would they learn about you by observing what you keep there? Some of you might shrug your shoulders and think, that's nothing, there's just a bunch of empty bottles, empty boxes. But a lot of us get a little nervous at that idea, the idea of someone examining the many medications that we're currently taking or have taken in the past. Because we understand that when someone looks at a collection of pill bottles or boxes or whatever you keep yours in, they see more than just medicine, right? They, they're able to see a, a picture of a side of, of the person that, that typically is hidden. Or they see different struggles that you perhaps had. They see things you were perhaps born with, allergies, certain difficulties you still face from birth. They perhaps see evidence of a variety of other illnesses that plague you, some just because we live in a fallen world, others because we open ourselves up to uh, circumstances because of poor choices. But in everything, they, they see these details that, that demonstrate and give a picture of just who we are and our weakness and our frailty. If you were to dig around underneath my own uh, bathroom sink, you would not find a whole lot of medicine necessarily, but a, an insane amount of poison ivy medication. Um, you think it would be enough to just protect uh, an entire horde of people, but I assure you it's just for me. Uh, whether it's Ivarest or Ivy Dry or old steroid pills that I've had to take for it, um, there is a large collection, and the reason for that really is twofold. Um, one, I'm horribly allergic to poison ivy. If it's within about a mile of me, it will get on my body, and it will spread all over my body, and I will become a grotesque monster with my eyes swollen shut, um, and I will be miserable um, not only physically, but miserable to be around. I'm sure my family can attest to that as I reek of vinegar and apple cider vinegar and, and alcohol that I spray on these, these rashes. That's one of the reasons why I have that cream. The other um, reason is because despite the fact that I'm horribly allergic, I'm also 100% inept at identifying poison ivy. <laughs> I, I've gotten it since I was a child. And yet I can be doing yard work in a patch of poison ivy, completely oblivious to it, until my neighbor, as happened just a year ago, says, hey, that's all poison ivy, you know. And I, of course, you know, confidently say, oh, yeah, 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 I, I saw that. All the while knowing, like, oh, dear Lord, I have to get inside. I have to seek cover. I have to seek my various creams and ointments to try to escape. Having said that, if any of you are able to uh, teach me how to identify it more than just the if leaves three, leave it be, because I assure you that's worthless to me. Um, <laughs> feel free to give me any good tips. Uh, so that I can avoid seeking that coverage of the various medications that I have to keep on stock at all times. I, like you, have to keep a variety of medicines because we all are weak. We are all vulnerable. We are all open to a variety of diseases, and we know those diseases, while at times are under control, are inevitable. And so medication, while it is a gift from God, while the advancements we've made in the medicine field is a great gift of grace, it is also humbling because it's a reminder of how frail every single one of us is from birth moving forward. And as such, it's something we would rather not necessarily examine or consider. While we're not looking at 
medicine treatments for the Israelites in Joshua 20, we are looking at something somewhat similar, for we're examining this legal procedure handed down from God. And as is the case with all laws prescribed by God, this law does more than just provide some, some empty practice. It gives us a picture of humanity. It reminds us of something very humbling about the Israelites then and about us today. Furthermore, as we look at this, we, we see an additional picture, not just of humanity's frailty, but we're given a picture of God as well. And we see then, even in this legal structure, something beautiful, a, a temporary shelter that God erects for his people. And yet even in that beauty, we understand that this law, like all laws, was always temporary. And so even as we examine Joshua 20, ultimately our goal is to see it in light of what we know comes down the road. For as grand and as great as this legal structure is, it was only intended ultimately to point us forward to that which is far more permanent. As we look at it today, then, my hope is that we can see it in, in all three glimpses, that we can see ourselves in this text, but more importantly, we can see God. And we can see that the refuge he offered his people is ultimately offered to us as well in something far more beautiful, far more permanent than just a legal procedure in Old Testament Israel. That being said, let me close, well, let me close this. Let me open prayer. Wait, that'd be a record. Let me open prayer. And we'll begin examining this legal structure, which is these cities of refuge. Pray with me, if you will. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to open up your word yet again. Already we've been blessed by singing songs of praise to you, by the reminder of the fact that we find refuge in you, by a reminder of your holiness, a reminder of your grace, your glory, your majesty, God, and we thank you for all of these things. We praise you for your justice, as Mike just read out of Psalm, God. We praise you for your compassion, for we know that justice alone would result in our own doom. But God, you're also good, you're gracious, you're compassionate to us, God. Fathers, we open up our study in Joshua chapter 20 today. God, I pray that we see all these things on display. God, give us humility as it is a reminder of our frailty, it's a reminder of our own fallenness, God. Give us eyes to see in this legal structure your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your justice. And God, use this text in Joshua 20 to propel us forward as we understand that as intricate and as wise as this law is, it is ultimately but a shadow of the far greater substance revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. As always, God, my prayers for my fellow believers today, God, might we be built up in the faith, God. For those who have not yet put their faith in you today, God, I pray that you humble them. Might you open up their eyes to the need they have of you. Open up their eyes to the reality of the impending judgment sits just over their heads, God, and cause them to come to you for refuge today. Cause them to be saved. For all of us, Lord, might this time be a time in which you are glorified, a time in which you remove all distractions from us and cause us to just be transfixed by your glory, God, the glory that we can see even here in Joshua 20. We love you, God. We praise you. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As we begin our text, we begin just in the few, first few verses in Joshua chapter 20. In verses 1 through 3, and immediately in these verses, as we'll see, we can quickly pick up on the humbling reminder a law like this provides. Read with me, if you will, Joshua chapter 20, verse 1 through 3. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate. The cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. Stop there for a moment. 
It's easy to gloss over references like this, easy to gloss over just in passing laws that God hands down to people like Joshua, to the Israelites. Yet it's important to, to pause when we come to a verse like this. It's important to take a step back and just think of perhaps how surprising it is that a law like this would even be needed in light of the context. I mean, remember, where is this law supposed to be enacted? Where is their new home in which this law will be emplaced? Well, that new place, that new address, of course, is not Egypt. It's not some wicked empire ruling over them. It's the promised land. They are about to set up shop in the land flowing with milk and honey, the place that's supposed to be a place of rest, of peace, of security, the place where you might assume if you're an Israelite that all your previous problems in Egypt are now solved. For now you are the people of God. Now God is your God. You are his people. And now you will be set apart to be that city on a hill, that light shining out the glory of God to the surrounding nations. And so if you're not careful, you might take that reality, that great blessed context, and assume, well, laws like this shouldn't be needed at all, should they? Things are going to be a lot better now that we're the people of God in God's promised land, won't they? Yet, of course, we understand as the Israelites understood time and time again, that the reason why laws like this are necessary is because their greatest problem was never external. They didn't sin because the Canaanites made them sin. They didn't sin because the Egyptians before that made them sin. They won't sin in the future because the Assyrians and the Babylonians made them sin. In the same way, the New Testament church didn't sin because Rome makes them sin. They sin because they're sinners. They are weak, vulnerable fallen creatures and they will both in premeditation as well as in complete accidents as we'll see here they will continue to choose to do terrible things to themselves and to other people this is human nature it is a blatantly obvious truth in scripture and even as we look at the world around us i highly doubt any of us would would debate this but even so as believers how often it is that, that we overlook this in our lives don't we how often is it as, as you and I fall into a, a temptation of some sort and we say, oh, I can't believe I did that again. I'm definitely not going to do that again in the future. We very confidently state, I will never be so foolish to do that again. And then the next day we're, we're saying the exact same thing. We're stunned that we'd be so immature, stunned that we would continue to commit this error, commit this sin. And yet that is the story of humanity. The reason why is because, again, we are still fallen, even those of us who are in Christ. We still have this fallen nature at work in us, that fleshly body that we inhabit. We understand the difficulties that this sin brings up in our own lives, but when you take into account again the context in which Joshua is set, when you consider just how high the bar has been set, this formation of a new nation, you understand how complicated the results of this sinful flesh will inevitably bring up over time. It's hard enough to maintain peace as sinners in our own households, much less as an entire nation. It's hard. It's complicated. There are a great deal of many nuances at work, at play. How can you possibly maintain peace when people are embroiled in constant controversy? There are innumerable examples of those controversies, of those difficulties. But perhaps one of the greatest to consider is that which God reminds us of here in Joshua 20. For here, God is not just speaking of the reality of dishonesty, a variety of other relatively common sins, he speaks of the reality in which a person may, by accident, take an act that results in the death of another human being. 
whether it's negligence or ignorance, it is that which we would call manslaughter today in our own legal system. And it is that activity in which a human life, an innocent life, is tragically lost. Not because of premeditated malice, not because a person hates that person and plans to take them out. No, because they just made a bad decision. Joshua is not the only place in the Old Testament that speaks of this. You can find a variety of examples that describe what this might look like in other passages, such as Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19. We won't look there this morning. But if you look at those other passages, you see that, that God gives specific examples of what you know, manslaughter might look like in their culture. And so, for instance, you have examples where a person's working with an axe, and in the course of swinging an axe, the axe head falls off, hits a person behind him, kills him. You have other examples where a person working with some heavy weight drops the weight perhaps over a wall and it lands on a person underneath, kills them, takes a life. Whatever it is, these things happen. They happen then. And of course, we understand in our own legal system today, they happen now. And the question, of course, is what, what do you do in response? Because as has always been the case, Regardless of the intent, if a life is taken, the natural response is is for a cry for justice. The victim of the crime of this act will cry out for life to be taken. And justly so. For it has always been the case that when a life is taken, the justice demands blood. For God has always instilled in humanity this precious reality of human life. You see it from Genesis moving forward. But just for the sake of evidence, if you would, look back to a passage like Genesis 9. Where even after the fall, even after great acts of wickedness that brought about the flood, you have, in Genesis 9, as God is giving this great covenant to Noah, we read in chapter 9, verse 5, surely, God says, I will require lifeblood from every beast, I will require it from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. As for you, be fruitful, multiply, populate the earth abundantly, multiply in it. We're familiar with that latter portion of the blessing, that is, be fruitful, multiply. Great. What oftentimes we gloss over is that first part. That first part in which God reaffirms the sanctity of human life reaffirms the seriousness with which he views the taking of any life, reaffirms the fact that when someone unjustly takes the life of another person, that person should die. As a result of that reaffirmation, as a result of just that innate understanding, humanity gets the fact that when a person dies, something terrible has happened. Regardless of the circumstances, Something awful has occurred, for this was not the way we were designed to be. And so in the case of the Old Testament, in that culture, as we read in verse 3, there is naturally this figure that is referred to as the avenger of blood. That is, in the case of manslaughter, a close relative that is given charge, given the opportunity to go seek vengeance, to take the life of the person that has killed their loved one. They do this not out of some sick obsession with revenge, They do this because that is what is viewed as most just. When a life is taken, that life needs to be taken in response. Yet, of course, while we understand that cry for justice, we also understand that the killing in this instance is slightly different, isn't it? 
For while the victim's family undoubtedly and understandably is crying for justice, the family of the one who has accidentally caused the loss of life is also crying out, are they not? For they would be there saying, no, this, this isn't a case of murder. It's okay, I've not broken one of the Ten Commandments. There was no intent here. Please forgive me. Please allow me to move on with my life. And so you have these two conflicting cries. One of the victim's family crying for justice, the other the cry of the offender's family crying for compassion. Seeking protection, seeking God's mercy. They cry out and they flee because they understand that their act requires the loss of life, but they also understand the circumstances that they feel they need some sort of coverage. And so in turn, they flee from the avenger of blood in verse 3, and they seek out one of these cities that are referred to as cities of refuge. Now I trust, maybe I shouldn't say this, I trust it's probably very few of us who have accidentally killed another person. I think that's probably safe to say. Yet even if we've never experienced that, every single one of us understands the reality of sin. And now even if we might not have an an intent to hurt other people, we are all guilty of this type of activity, are we not? For all of us have had that experience where we speak out of line. And without realizing it, we have caused great, great emotional harm to a person nearby. We have caused them to, to suffer even internally, even though we personally never intended that to happen. Parents, perhaps you have at one point in time in your life spoken in a cross, impatient manner with your child. I can't imagine ever doing that myself, but that perhaps has happened with some of you. And even though you didn't intend on communicating a lack of love for your child, that's exactly what was communicated. We do the same thing with our spouses. We say something that that suggests we don't trust them. We suggest something that we care about other people more than them. And even though that's not what we meant to say, well, that's how it's going to be interpreted. You think similarly when you look at financial decisions perhaps we've made that cause great harm to other people. Mistakes you make at work that ultimately harm your employer, harm their business. You can go down the list, can you not? And understand that in our frailty, in our ignorance, we inevitably will choose some decisions, we will, we will follow through with certain actions which cause harm to others and leave us exposed. And if something is not done about it, we will be left exposed and looking like a fool who deserves punishment, who deserves strict and swift justice. And if you've ever been in that moment you understand how how vulnerable it feels. How exposed you are. You understand that regardless of how pure your heart might have been, that you have fallen into this point where it seems justice is just around the corner and surely there's someone who's looking to take you out as a response. Not physically necessarily, but, but you've been there. In that moment, in that, that moment of exposure... The question is, where does one turn? In the case of Joshua 20, when the stakes could not possibly be any higher, when a life has been lost, well, what does justice look like? How can we ensure that no more innocent life is lost? Well, if you're ruling according to just a simple law of the land in a way that's purely just, you might suggest, well, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, take them out. It doesn't matter what intent is. That perhaps would be just in the eyes of some, but that is not the manner in which God works, is it? For in response to this 
frailty of humanity, in response to our own failures, we see God instead provide a beautiful and at least temporary shelter for those seeking cover. We see the system laid out in verse 4 all the way through verse 9 of this chapter. And so follow along with me as we read and and see this legal procedure on display. Beginning in verse 4, he, that is the one who has taken life, shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city. They shall take him into the city, they shall take him into the city to to them and give them a place so that they may dwell among them. Now, if the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the manslayer shall return to his own city and to his own house to the city from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh and Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, Kiriatharba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. Beyond the Jordan east of Jericho, they designated Bezer in the wilderness and the plain from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan in the tribe of Nasa. These were the appointed cities for all the sons of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns amongst them, that whoever kills any person unintentionally may flee there, and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stands before the congregation. Here in these few verses, we see, in very short order, a, a fairly impressive legal procedure that God prescribes. This is not the first time he's prescribed it, for as he mentioned at the beginning, he has handed this down already to Moses. Joshua would have been aware of this. Joshua was not creating this on his own. But in passages like Joshua 20, and elsewhere in Numbers 35, we, we see what is required of God's people to ensure justice, even in the midst of these very complicated situations. And the procedure that is prescribed here is, is fairly straightforward. It revolves around the use of these Levitical cities that are designated as cities of refuge. If you read throughout Joshua and even before in, in books like Numbers, You perhaps remember and already know that the Levites were different from the other tribes. The priestly group of God's people did not inherit large plots of land, as we typically see in the nation of Israel. But rather, they lived in designated cities, 48 cities, I believe, scattered throughout the nation. In those cities, the priests would live. They would perform their duties as the representatives of God's people. And included in those 48 cities... God says to set six particular cities apart for the purpose of being cities of refuge. If you have a bulletin, you see those six cities highlighted on the map. The significance of the cities, as we can see, is both in the fact that they are Levitical cities, but also because they're scattered about in a way to guarantee that regardless of where you are in the land, within a day's time, you can get here. God set it up to ensure that they could not favor one side or the other, north, south, east, west, but rather, regardless of where you are in the nation, you can get to one of these cities. As we just read, after coming to one of these cities of refuge, the manslayer would present himself to the elders of the city, that is, present himself to these priests. The priests, having heard this cry of innocence, would allow the person to come in, They would prevent that person from being handed over to the avenger of blood. And having given this person a trial, if they find him to be innocent, that is, innocent of any um, malice intent, 
they would allow this manslayer to live in a city of refuge and give him protection there until the high priest or proper representative of that city passes away. At that point in time, the manslayer is able to return back to a city with the promise that they will still be protected, with the promise that his life still cannot be taken. It's a pretty simple, pretty straightforward system. And one that I think a lot of us could just take in stride and say, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. It seems to be relatively just, relatively compassionate. And we could easily move forward into chapter 21 and get back into a description of the cities given to the Levites. But it's important, again, just as we did at the beginning, to, to pause here. It's important to pause here because even in this judicial system, we see really a beautiful thing that God does. We see God do something that, that doesn't just instill justice in the people, but it reflects a divine character, divine attributes that are so foreign to us in our fallen nature. It shouldn't be too hard to appreciate this because if we just start considering what is at stake here, we would all, I think, acknowledge that this is not the system you and I would come up with. Certainly not if it's our loved one that's been killed. We would definitely not come up with cities of refuge. You look at the culture in which we live and we, we say things like innocent until proven guilty, right? But come on. Come on, we know who's guilty, Right? If you've ever served on a jury, you have been given a very ugly reminder of this. And I, I don't mean to speak poorly of people that have been on juries that I've been on. But you hear that type of talk. People immediately judge guilt or innocence of a person purely based off the way they look. And so if they're not dressed nice enough, they will assume they're guilty. If they look differently than they do, they will assume guilty. If they sound differently than they do, they will assume guilt. We tend to, by our nature, assume the worst in people who are different from us. And that might be speaking with somewhat of a broad brush, but we see examples of this constantly in our nation. This is who we are. And while we presume grace for ourselves, while we, we assume people will believe the best in us, generally by our nature, we do the exact opposite when it comes to offenders who hurt us. You think of how this happens in your own life. If a good friend offends you, if they betray your trust, you, if it's a healthy friendship, will likely believe the best in that person. You'll say, okay, I get it. But if it's that guy at work you just can't stand, right? So that person who's offended you multiple times before, well, they can apologize all they want, but you really know what's in their heart. You know they're guilty. They don't deserve compassion. They don't deserve grace. They deserve swift justice. We understand how hard that is in everyday affairs. Consider how much more difficult it is, again, when the bar is at this level. Consider how hard it is when it's a person you don't like who has, by accident supposedly, killed your spouse, killed your child, killed your closest friend. If you are the offended in that situation, you will by nature want nothing more than that person's blood to be spilled. It's natural. That is what we want. In fact, I think when most people imagine the sort of justice that the Old Testament would think of, that's the system most people assume. Again, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, some system in which there is no grace, there is no consideration of motivation, of intent, there is only justice. That's the system most people envision. Yet again, that's not the system that God gives. For instead, in this moment, God instills a system in which both justice as well as compassion are shared in equal balance. We see, of course, God's justice on, on clear display here, do we not? 
For we see God still cares very, very deeply for the life that has been taken. This is a constant theme throughout Scripture. God cares deeply for those who were made in His image. Therefore, God understands when life is taken, it is tragic. That is a point so oftentimes we fail to appreciate as believers, regardless of the circumstances. When someone is killed, it is a sad, tragic reality. Because that's not the way things were intended to be. And the image bearer of God has been put in the ground. That's a tragedy. God understands the justice that it requires. You then understand then why he requires this trial. He does not presume and accept the cry of innocence. He tells his people, no, you provide a trial. You still ensure that they are being honest. And even after that, even if they're proven innocent, even then life is required if you missed it. Because even after that plea and that result is brought in, well, well, the killing still results ultimately in an atonement that's required. Not in the life lost of the manslayer, but in the life of the high priest. For as we'll say here in a minute, the life of the high priest is connected then to this killing. And so even in the midst of, of this innocent state, well, there still is a life that is lost. And there still is this imagery of death. And so there is this justice that God still demands and still holds up, and he must, for he is the righteous judge of all creation. Yet again, even in the midst of, of holding up this justice, God simultaneously is demonstrated to be a God of great compassion. For God alone understands the heart. God alone would be able to, to see when the intent is not there and understand why when that intent is absent, the person does not deserve capital punishment. And so he was willing to give even a frail, foolish figure a moment of grace and compassion. He's willing to give them a life that is preserved, given a, a life that's different it's a life lived in a city refuge, it seems away from their family, away from their job, away from everything they've known, but still, still it's a life. And there's great compassion in that. Great grace, great patience of God on display, a patience that, that is all too oftentimes lacking in our own hearts. Furthermore, we see the glory of God on display here, not just in the justice that he shows, not just in the compassion, but when we consider the breadth of this compassion. And who he says this compassion is applied to. For again, in a way that it would be easy to gloss over, look back at verse 9. In this summary statement for these cities of refuge. And there, according to the word of God, we read these, that is, cities of refuge. These were the appointed cities for all the sons of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns amongst them that whoever kills any person unintentionally may flee there. This is perhaps the most shocking statement of all in this description, is it not? It shocks me. It's not just the Israelite that benefits from this gracious and just law. It's the stranger. It's the alien. It's the outsider. Again, by our own nature, that is the last person we think should deserve our grace, our compassion. Again, you put it in a modern context. It's hard enough to show grace to the person who commits a crime who looks like us. How about the immigrant? The person who looks nothing like us. The person we think doesn't even deserve to be here. How gracious are we to that person? How compassionate do we want to be? Yet God here instills this legal structure in which, no, they're given shelter as well. They're protected from the unjust 
godless spilling of blood that would otherwise occur. This is perhaps astonishing to some people who are new to Joshua, but if you've been with us throughout our study in Joshua, you understand that expansive love of God is not limited to Joshua 20. Perhaps it actually came up quite early in the book, didn't it? With the story of Rahab. Perhaps the least likely candidate to receive the grace of God. Rahab the harlot, who is an outsider, a Canaanite. By all measures from an earthly perspective, as godless as you can be, Yet in God's gracious plan, she is a part of the chosen people. In God's gracious plan, he changes her heart. And she risks everything to save, to save servants of the true King Yahweh. From an Israelite's perspective, again, she doesn't deserve that. And yet she's brought in. And not just brought in, she's made a part of the community. She is then part of the lineage of David. Therefore, then a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. That is astonishing. And it's a demonstration of God's great, grand love. Love that's applied not just to Israel, but applied to people outside of the nation of Israel as well if they simply follow him. It's oftentimes easy to forget that, but suffice it to say in our own day and age now, it's vitally important that we appreciate this expansive love. For I don't know the ethnicity of everyone here, but looking out, I got to assume it's mostly Gentiles, right? Not a lot of... Jews, not a lot of Israelites in here, I'm guessing. You can come up to me afterwards if I'm wrong on that. But We're Gentiles, which means we're outsiders. We are by nature wicked. We are by nature shameful. We are by nature entirely undeserving to be part of the people of God. Every single one of us. And yet by God's gracious hand, we've been grafted in. We've been given place. Instead of just being treated purely with justice that is for our own sins, we've been given forgiveness. And so we benefit. We benefit from this same God. A God who is gracious to save the Hebrew people, but God who is just as gracious to save people within Canaan, and a God who is just as gracious to save people in southeast Missouri today. It's a beautiful display of God's compassion. A beautiful display of God's love and a a healthy reminder of God's justice still. And as such, this structure, these cities, are pretty incredible, pretty spectacular. And taken just by themselves can appear to be just the greatest solution one could ever possibly imagine in handling such a complicated, complex situation that otherwise could, could threaten peace, could threaten unity amongst the tribes of Israel. Really, all of God's law is like that and should cause us to take a step back and refrain and appreciate the greatness of God on display. And yet again, as is mentioned on your notes, as as beautiful as this shelter is that's being built up to provide refuge, it's temporary. It's limited, severely limited. And as such, it was never intended to be the final solution that would solve all problems, that would solve all violence and complicated judicial matters. You see the temporary nature and the limitations on display in at least two ways here in this text. To really understand it better, if you would turn back with me to Numbers 35, if you will. As I mentioned earlier, Numbers 35 lays out the same law and the same system, but perhaps in 35 you see the limitations even more clearly. We'll pick it up in verse 25 of Numbers 35 and read through 28. Look at two limitations applied to these cities and to this justice. 
Verse 25, we read, The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who is anointed with holy oil. But if the manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of the city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he will not be guilty of blood because he should have remained in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. Here, even within this gracious and compassionate law of God, we see very real limitations, don't we? First of all, we see the limitation of, of geography that is applied here. For God does not say, if the manslayer proves to be innocent of murder, then he can simply live his life as he previously lived. No, he says he can live it in this one city. From the text that we're given in Scripture, and based off of anything else I could find, there seems to be no hint again of the idea of this man's family coming with him. There's nothing that, that speaks of, of just picking up and starting a brand new life here. No, they leave their home. And they are now in this very gracious gift, but still very limited context. They live in the city with these priestly figures. And if they leave the city, and the blood avenger finds out, well, that avenger is going to probably find justice and kill him. And as God says, it really is on the manslayer's hands at that point. For he was given comfort, he was given refuge, and he chose to leave it. And so as glorious and as compassionate as it is to think that God gives them city again, that's a real limitation. You can appreciate how difficult of a position that puts you in then because for years on end, this is your new home. This is your new life. This is it. And so you are limited here. Limited to live in this one city with whatever resources already exist there. That itself is quite the limitation. What is perhaps even more colorful here though and more fascinating is a second limitation that God instills. That limitation is one that doesn't simply tie you, the manslayer, to a city. It ties you to a very specific person. That person being the high priest. We already saw that limitation of the fact that it's the priest you have to judge your case, but you see it goes even beyond that. For again, pick it up with me if you will. In verse 25, I apologize for reading again, but it's important to see. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to a city of refuge to which he fled, and he shall live it in it until the death of the high priest who is anointed with holy oil. The same point was picked up from in Joshua chapter 20, as we read earlier, when it says they shall remain there until the death of the one who is the high priest. Yet again, we see that the refuge is given, but it's tied carefully to this very interesting figure. And the question, of course, is, is why? What's the significance here? Why do they have to wait until the high priest dies? And there's a number of theories that are thrown out with that, two primary ones being either it applies to some period of time in which you assume, okay, by the time the high priest dies, most people have probably forgotten about this and they'll move on. And so the, the next priest kind of pardons them. The other theory, which I think is far more likely based off of all of Old Testament text is tied to the role of the high priest as the one who helps bring atonement, as the representative of the people of God, as the connection between God's people and God, that is, Yahweh. 
There are numerous passages in Scripture that speak to that unique connection that the high priest is characterized by, that the high priest provides. That high priest who, as Numbers mentions, is anointed with that holy oil, set apart as a special figure. Time does not allow us to explore the many passages, but you can see this in passages like Exodus 29. Leviticus chapter 4 speaks of this as well. You can also look to a passage like Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16 references this high priest again in the unique role that he plays. From Leviticus chapter 16, verse 32, you see the similar language. It says, the priest who is anointed, it's the same type of oil we are talking about earlier, and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year, just as the Lord commanded Moses, so he did. The high priest did a number of things on behalf of the people of God. Perhaps the most important thing is this act of atonement. The high priest and high priest alone was able to, to offer these sacrifices and stand basically in the place of the people. As he laid his hand on the sacrifice, as he offered that sacrifice on behalf of the people's sins to God. That high priest, it seems, was not just a representative of the people at large, but a representative of the cities of refuge, and in particular, a representative of this manslayer. And so in a very unique, but important way, the moment that manslayer entered into that city of refuge, he was tied to that priest. And until that priest died, the proper payment had not yet been made. But when the priest died, well, the payment is made, atonement's been paid for, and the man's able to return back home to his family. Again, it seems odd, but, but immediately we see the limitation here. We see the bizarre relationship this creates between the manslayer and the priest, where suddenly you are just waiting for this priest to die so you can get back home. Where you, as the manslayer, understand you are somehow now tied directly to this other figure. And so you wait. And you wait, and you wait, until by the death of the high priest, you are somehow covered. No longer vulnerable, able to enter back into the wilderness, able to return back to your hometown. At which point in time, life moves on. But at which point in time, again, you live on in a fallen world, with fallen people who will continue to mess up, who will continue to harm each other. You live in a world in which, day in, day out, more priests come around, more priests offer sacrifices, more people sin, more priests die, more priests are ordained, more sacrifices, more sin. On and on and on it goes until you understand very quickly that as beautiful as these shelters were, as great as this law was, it was similar to what our medicine cabinet is today. It's kicking the can down the road for the most part. It's putting off some diseases here and now, but it's not giving us new life. It's not removing the root cause of violence, the root cause of our struggle. There's a shelter that is beautiful, but eventually it would break down. What it leaves us with, what it would leave Israel with time and time again, was the reality that they were still waiting on something even better. That as beautiful as this was, it was but a shadow of the substance that was yet to come. As great as that high priest was, they were waiting for a priest that was infinitely better. 
we understand, of course, as we move into the New Testament, that, that nothing changes to a certain extent. And to say that, that need does not go away magically. It's not as if a few hundred years pass and suddenly the people of God figure stuff out and suddenly we're really well behaved. No. No, we're still just as sinful. And as such, still just as exposed, just as vulnerable. You and I are no better than anyone in the ancient Near East when it comes to our own internal morality. We're just as fallen, just as foolish, just as sinful, just as violent. As advanced as our society has been today, we still deal with the exact same issues as every ancient empire that has fallen before us. And as every empire that lives long after we do will still suffer from we understand then that we, like all humanity, are wandering around with a target on our backs, understanding that because of our sin, justice is called for. And while we might seek temporary justice and temporary relief in other places, nothing can provide it long term. The need then recalls not just for a new legal system, but for a new priest. For someone who could somehow perform all these things, but without the limitations that are found in the Old Testament. That's where we see, ultimately, how these cities of refuge point to this permanent home. There are numerous passages we can see this come through, but, but if you would just look, for instance, to Hebrews 10. The book of Hebrews is a beautiful book, and it so oftentimes displays how that shadow which begins in the Old Testament finds its ultimate substance, finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. One of the many examples of this, in terms of how, high, how Christ serves as the ultimate high priest, is found in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 11, in this passage we read, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, that is Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, for by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us at, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Do you understand the weight of what is being declared here? Do you understand how everything that was lacking in the Old Testament law ultimately is fulfilled here? And understand why then there is no longer any need of some separate city built up in the middle of nowhere to which we can flee. There's no longer any need for some brand new law by which we can maintain some secret connection to God. No, there is a permanent structure, a permanent work provided in a permanent high priest, that is Jesus Christ who didn't simply voluntarily act on our behalf, that is to say he doesn't simply live long enough and, and take our case before God, but, but he acted as the sacrifice. And in that sacrifice, he atones not just for sins we commit accidentally, but for sins you and I commit daily, on purpose. Christ died for that. Christ covers that. And regardless of how oftentimes we fall into those sins, if we have found refuge in Christ, all those sins are covered. We are sanctified, we are glorified, we are perfected in that covenant, and there is no longer any need for additional atonement. No need for new sacrifices, no need for cities of refuge, no need to be limited by geography, by time itself. For we, as believers, 
despite having been outside of the covenant before, are able to simply confess our sins to Christ, find refuge in him, and be taken care of both here, now, and for all eternity. And it is therefore him, that person, that is our refuge. Not just for protection from outsiders that wish to harm us, but protection from the wrath of God that we deserve. And so we, as believers daily, are able to enjoy this gift, able to enjoy this refuge. And as a result, we as believers are able to look back at Joshua and see, as beautiful as that is, how exponentially greater the gift we've been given is today. As we consider all these things, there's much more we could say, but for the sake of time, let me just say this unbeliever, if you are here and you've not yet put your faith in Christ, you are guilty and deserve the wrath of God. You are wandering through the wilderness with a giant target on your chest awaiting hell. And apart from Christ, there is no hope of refuge. You will be judged and judged justly and rightly. But it doesn't have to be. For the same God whose wrath will fall upon you offers you now grace. Offers you now, outsider, compassion if you would just seek refuge in a son, if you would just confess your sins and place your trust in him. And I encourage you, I beg you to do that today. Find me afterwards in the lobby. Ask me. I'm happy to assist you in that process. Ask elders at the welcome desk. Seek help now. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, the cities of refuge are a reminder of why we need to humble ourselves daily. It's a reminder of how broken we are, how fallen we are, how frail we are. It's a reminder of the fact that apart from Christ, we would still be utterly hopeless. For you and I commit the same sins and make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so it's a call to be humble. And in that humility, it's a call to daily return to our only refuge, Christ. To kneel before the cross every single waking moment. To cry out to him. Not because we're innocent, but because we're guilty. Because we need his covering. And so we cry out to him, and daily we can live in his presence, knowing that regardless of where we roam on this earth, regardless of how dark of a season we might go through, we are still tied to the high priest who is our anchor in the temple, who still connects us back to Yahweh the Father. And so we rejoice in that daily. And we look forward to the day in which we're not limited by this physical body in this fallen world, but which we see our priest face to face. And we enjoy that refuge in person for the rest of eternity. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your justice. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, God, that you do punish sin. For without that, you would be unjust and unworthy to be worshiped. But we thank you that in Jesus Christ, our sin has been paid for. And so you are still just and yet still compassionate as well. And we praise you, God. Might we daily remember our need of you. Might we daily seek refuge in your son, Jesus Christ. As we live out our lives, God, might we do so humbly, knowing that we are nothing but your servants. And so as we interact with the world around us, let us not cast stones upon them, speaking of our own self-righteousness, but let us assist them to the one place of refuge. And let us do it with joy and gladness, knowing that we too are undeserving knowing you alone are worthy of praise, God. 
Bless the time as we close now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.